There's about 150 people, truly, all men, that control the world. And I think that's the re one of the causes of rising populism around the world. It's one of the reasons why we're seeing record levels of disengagement in workplaces. Who are we going to become in this new world order? And who, or who do we need to become? The gnarliest part of the process is the friction between what was and what is yet to be. Humans in the system find changing organizations really hard. Well, guess what? The same is true in society. I mm -hmm. mean, the workplace is really just one manifestation of society. Do you understand why it is so important to connect relationally with a workforce and bring forward this sense of safety. It also means getting under the hood of the humans, right? Like, mm. what is it that makes people tick? What is the chemical equation, the magic formula yeah. that you have to follow to unleash like this beast? Now you're speaking my language, keep right? going. <laughs> and I think that there are very few organizations in the world that do it. And the reason is yeah. quite simple, because it's hard freaking work. I'm Stuart Crabb, and to me, belonging means that I matter, that I see you, I hear you, um, that what you have to say and what you have to contribute is important. I am so insanely excited to have you here. What people don't know is that I am a fan of yours. I have, yeah. you know, standboyed you from the beginning of meeting you since Facebook days. We met. Back in 2011? Yeah, all those years ago at this point. Makes me feel a little bit advanced in years. <laughs> <laughs> it is such an honor to have you. Thank you. I talk about you all the time. I brought you up just last week. You come up in conversation in all my presentations. Um, the reason why, and I'm actually getting emotional talking about it right now, is, you know, I think Maya Angelou was the one that said, um, What's important is, is how people make you feel when you mm. walk away from the conversation mm. or the interaction. And my experience at Facebook with you for almost two and a half years was that you valued me, you respected me, you appreciated me in ways that I had never been appreciated. And you yelled at me once. <laughs> <laughs> I can sometimes do that. It's I'm, something I'm working on. <laughs> and when I brought it up to your attention, you apologized. Mm -hmm. And I just spoke about that last week. Mm -hmm. We were talking about how managers take accountability and, 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 and how important accountability is. And when is it appropriate to apologize yeah. in moments of those accountabilities? And I gave that story. Um, mm. but the Vancouver office, and then we had to shutter the Vancouver office, mm. and then we had to bring everything back to MPK. You kept giving me, you, t you told me that I was your special project Well, person. actually, and you know, the, the interesting <laughs> thing is, like, we were putting up the scaffolding on this huge organization, right? And so yeah. there were so many things that were important that we needed to do um, that I didn't trust other people with the organization to get it done with the same efficiency. I mean, you, you, the very first project you came in, which was to help mm -hmm. Facebook as a United States corporation be 
AB 1825 compliant, right. which um, to viewers, you, you probably wonder what the hell AB 1825 is. It was the Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was Governor Schwarzenegger's contribution to, you know, uh, labor law in the in the state of California was making sure that managers got sex trained yeah. to spot and prevent sexual harassment every two years, which is kind of, you know, comical given his own past and what brought this law into being. But it was a very good law. And, um, you know, in an organization as chaotic mm -hmm. as Facebook, with all these people running around in thousands of directions, getting them to, to do that and avoid an audit and a penalty was important. And you, you crushed it. You didn't just do it. You crushed it, which is why I kept giving you work. <laughs> I can't believe you remember that. Yes. And it was one of those, listen, it was one of those projects that everybody recognized was important. Everybody also had other important stuff. And it's like, we just can't do it, Stu. Yeah. And what's going to happen is all this is going to be a mess. People are going to get missed off. Mm -hmm. um, and then suddenly at some point, there's going to be a very serious ER issue. Mm -hmm. And and, we, and it, we're going to get found out that we didn't train everybody. And Cheryl yeah. was always very clear. Yeah. This is an important part. Respect is an important part of our culture. Right. So managers have to do this training. Right. And you were the... The, the pointy end of that spear. That's amazing. I, I We were 93% compliant at yeah, one Yeah, it's amazing. Like for an organization of our chaotic size, like we had thousands of people in like multiple locations, just all, just everybody with what I call CPD, continuous yeah. partial, C, continuous partial sort of attention, CPA yeah. rather. You yeah. know, they're, they're always scanning the periphery, yeah. you know, making sure that they know what's coming down the pike, but going deep and narrow around a few things is hard in, right. the, in those kinds of environments. So, and so telling people they've got to go to <laughs> harassment prevention training is kind of weird, <laughs> but important. <laughs> That's awesome. You were at Facebook for how long? Seven and a half years. Yeah. So I joined the company when it was a, you know, a handful of hundreds of people. Um, and I left when it was 17,000. So it was a wonderful ride. It was, mm. it was probably, you know, as, a, as an HR professional and somebody that particularly focuses on organizational effectiveness mm -hmm. and culture, you know, I got to have the ride of my life. Um, and it propelled me into a successful consulting mm. career, you know, so I've been very grateful for that. You were head of L&D, Learning and Development. Yeah, I founded the function. Um, yeah. I was the first, I, I was brought in. So at the time I was working for um, speaker and author Marcus Buckingham. Um, so mm -hmm. I, 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 I was previously the global head of learning at Yahoo. And when I left Yahoo, I went to work for Marcus uh, to start to build his consulting mm -hmm. practice because he'd really just recently left Gallup and he was still doing a lot of speaking. He was writing s several new books. Um, and so for about a year and a half, you know, I worked closely with, with their head of design, a wonderful woman, Charlotte, and we traveled the world and taught lots of interesting classes. Wow. Yeah, it ended up being a re really wonderful experience. That's so cool. Well, and it was because of the work I'd done that I got referred into, into Facebook because um, Laurie Gola, the, yep. the head of people, um, is a strengths evangelist. And she had just read Marcus's book, like, I don't know, oh, I think the year fine. before, and was like, oh, we have to do this work at Facebook. And so that was my journey in, was um, knowing enough about this stuff to help the company know what were the first steps to take, you know. That was great. It was wonderful. I want to really dive into this, this, this thing that you were sharing with, with my producer, Mike, this new world order. Oh, and and to yeah. really explore this this idea, this this concept, this this thought that you have, and and to talk mm. about, you say the world in ten years will look drastically different. What skills do we need to be able to succeed in this world? And I one hundred percent agree. Yeah, we're wherever we're 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 headed somewhere. We're headed somewhere, mm -hmm. and 
I am so curious about where we're headed because at this moment it looks it looks like VUCA, right? It, it, it's it's mm. volatile, mm. it's uncertain, absolutely. it's complex, absolutely. and it's absolutely ambiguous, and it's stressing people the fuck out. Absolutely. So who are we going to become in this new world order, and who, or who do we need to become? Yeah, that's those are really interesting questions. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the, the, the great sweeping moments of history when things changed, um, you know, uh, the, you know what happened was that there was a long period of stability. You know, um, the Renaissance was a period of like great creative discovery, right? the The nineteenth century was a period of like industrialization and 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 the, an expansion out into the world to look for raw materials to. Mm -hmm build the engine of capitalism and then we saw the 20th century you know about technological advancements and perhaps the most profound being the internet and and i think that what's happened in each of those periods in periods is it has been there have been sort of important ways in which society has made adjustments uh, new laws come um patterns of behavior change in society mm. priorities change money moves you know um and so does and so does the technology and the jobs with it and i think what's I think that a, what, what's also emblematic of these great, what comes between these great periods are periods of friction. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you and I know as, as uh, because of the work that we do, when we, when we educate and coach managers and leaders about how to manage change in their organization, the gnarliest part of the process is the friction between what was and what is yet to be. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is quite simple. Psychological safety is the core organizing principle of the brain, right? Before mm -hmm. any of the higher brain functions even get to play much of a role, the role of our amygdala in our limbic system is to regulate this sense of, do I feel safe with the mm -hmm. outside world? And it's one of the principal reasons why, you know, humans in the system find changing organizations really hard. Well, guess what? The same is true in society. I mm -hmm. mean, the workplace is really just one manifestation of society. And so I, I think love that, that so much, you know, it, I mean, we spend so much of our lives invested in the experience so of work that to somehow think it as but it's, it's separate, it's nuts. I mean, yeah. Martin Seligman talks about mm -hmm. this concept in his book, Flourish, a lot, which yeah. is, you know, if we want to build strengths-based workplaces, it has to start with strengths-based families and strengths-based schools, 100%. you know, and, and strengths-based communities. So, so I, think, I think that what we're seeing right now is a lot of chaos. We're seeing the continued rise of populism. I mean, populism has not gone away. You know, sure. um, we're seeing autocratic and sometimes fascistic leaders gaining enormous influence around the world. I mean, look at the UK, look at France, look at the United States, look at yep. Brazil, yep. you know, look at the yep. Philippines. Yep. Uh, I mean, there, it's everywhere, um, which tells you that there is enormous discontentment with the current status quo. And I think for most people that whilst they may sit on the political left and right, it's about deep dissatisfaction that they're not getting treated fairly and equally in society. And I think, you know, we might have looked at uh, Occupy Wall Street a decade ago as being about tackling the 1%, wow. but we've gone beyond that. We're now dealing with the 0.1%. I mean, there's, at this point, there's about a, you know, I was listening to a TikTok the other day from a venture capitalist who I know personally and respect a great deal. His name's Chamath, and he was the very first head of growth at Facebook. And he was saying, you know, there's about 150 people, truly, all men, that control the world. In other words, these men, because of the assets that they control and own, really control all of the rest of us and have enormous and exert enormous control over governments. And I think it's deeply pro problematic that you've, you've got these billionaires that bring their biases, sometimes unsavory ones, to bear on 
points of leverage that can upend societies. Because all of this, I think, and it is, you know, is in many ways a reaction to deep, deep dissatisfaction across, you know, a, a range of socially liberal, capitalistic, and even some autocratic societies. You know, we're seeing that distillation of power and wealth now creating deep stress across societies. Then when you layer on top of that, that we're mm. burning the planet, and then you layer on artificial intelligence, which for those of you that are listening that have already started to use it, can see it's immense power. Mm -hmm. Immense, immense power. So, I mean, mm. you know, it's all of these things. I sound like a conspiracy theorist, don't I? But these are, everything I've described are issues of fact. I mean, they, they, this is not, it's not that these things are not happening. We see them all around us. Absolutely. And this is contributing to immense amount of neurological stress Absolutely, for humans across the globe, It really, right? truly is. You, I, I want to just deviate for just a moment. You worked with, studied with David Rock, who's the CEO of yeah. Neuro Leadership Institute. I know David well. Institute, yeah, he's a wonderful right? man. Yeah. Um, I remember you actually gave me a ticket to one of the conferences <laughs> at Facebook. You understand neuroscience. You understand human systems. You understand nervous systems. You understand why it is so important to connect relationally with a workforce and bring forward this sense of safety, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, psychological mm -hmm. safety, given where we are in the world, given where we are, especially in this country right mm -hmm. now, right in the United States, with all of the racial tension, mm -hmm. with all of the violence that is present. Mm -hmm. And layer on top of that, all the systemic oppression that is, mm -hmm. you know, tendriling out across the globe, truly, yeah. right? Everything that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. I still have to come to work. <laughs> I still have to do my job. Absolutely. I still have to execute on my role, my OKR, and feed my <clears throat> family, and take care of myself. Mm. Talk more about that. So I do just want to qualify that very dark, doomy, gloomy picture I posted just a few minutes ago and say that what's also true yeah. is that over the last 200 years, global murder rates have slowly and consistently dropped. Right. You know, um, the number of people in the world that have access to clean water has increased. Uh, the number of girls that are moving into tertiary education around the world. I mean, mm. there are a lot of really fundamental aspects of what creates a high flourishing society that are moving in the, in the right direction. So I don't want to leave anybody with the right. impression that this is it's all doom and gloom. There's actually a lot of fantastic things that are happening. Right. And, and I do think that the, the political awakening of the mm. Gen V class mm. and Gen Z class, which is what is occurring right now mm -hmm. in the world, gives me enormous hope. So, so what, where I'm wanting you to go with this is taking us from chaos to flourish, right? Yeah. Like to, 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 what's the through line in this new world order? Yeah. What's that through line? And, and, and to talk about it globally, but then to talk about it locally as well, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, that old term, you know, we're human beings, not human doings, mm. right? I do think that we, the, capital, the capitalist or even the autocratic systems of the world see humans as numbers, as components, as pieces. Mm -hmm. And yet the reality is we are emotional creatures. We see mm -hmm. the world through an emotional filter. And if you think about psychological safety, right? Mm -hmm. Psychological safety, we tend to think of it in the negative, which is if I don't feel psychologically safe, this, this, and this. 
But what happens when you do feel psychologically safe? What mm-hmm. you have is connection. Right. So in other words, safety is intrinsic to connection and connection is one of the most important needs for human survival. I mean, during the Second World H- War, down, yeah. you know, they discovered that those babies that were orphaned because their parents died under the rubble, those babies that were cuddled every day for yep. like 30 seconds had better mortality rates than those that didn't. And I think the same experiments, things have been found in China. I mean, it's remarkable. It tells you that we need and crave connection. And so there is no difference yeah. between the workplace and so-called real life. There is none because we bring our whole selves to work every day and organizations that want to ensure, let me put it in performance terms, right? Please. If success impact in an organization is a consequence of your ability and success at making sure that every single human that you're paying on payroll is pointed at the target where they can have the biggest impact Mm -hmm. and you build systems and processes that clear the pathway in front of them so they can hit it. That means not only building systems and processes that streamline the system and make it efficient, but it also means getting under the hood of the humans, right? Like Mm. what is it that makes people tick? What is the chemical equation, the magic formula that you have to follow to unleash like this beast. Now you're speaking my language. Keep right? going. <laughs> and I think that there are very few organization in the world, organizations in the world that do it. And the reason is yeah. quite simple because it's hard freaking work. Yeah. It's hard work. And a lot of founders and leaders um, don't believe fully in its potential. Or maybe they've never been in an organization where they've seen, they've seen that, you know, a humanistic approach to employing people can be incredibly powerful. Sadly, there are very few companies in the world that do it because, you know, it's, it's tough scientific work to kind of design an organization that can create those outcomes. You talk about defining engagement as, and I love this so much, I choose to go the extra mile for you, an yeah. occupational way to talk about kindness and kindness that is reciprocated. The neurons in our brain mirror that psychological safety or that psychological contract when people join an organization, they enter into a legal contract, but there's also the emotional, psychological contract. Talk about that. that I, I've never heard anyone talk about that. It's so important. It's so critical. Mm. So it's the bargain we form in our head, right, uh, about this relationship, me and the company. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's most keenly felt through the relationship with their direct manager. But it's a relationship nevertheless, and it's an entirely emotional and psychological one. It's unspoken. So you don't know what it is, you know, as the manager, but you've got one too as well. So first of all, you don't know what it is unless you take the, make the effort to find out what it might be. Um, And the best managers take the time to, to discover what that might be, because you'll learn so much about this relationship and how to manage that person in a way they really want to be managed. Um, It also helps you understand expectations. The problem of course, is that a lot of organizations screw it up or don't do it very well they don't they don't they don't do these things that create a setting where somebody in their head thinks this is great i mean you know another way of putting it is you know if the amygdala is always saying scanning the environment every 20th of a second and saying am i safe am i safe am i safe Mm -hmm. in the context of work and this important relationship that gets articulate articulated as every day are we even are we even 
Are we even? Yeah. Are we even? We ask ourselves that every day oh, at I some deep unconscious level. And sometimes it bubbles up to the surface when yeah. things go south and we feel that we've been untreated unfairly because guess what? You know, when you look at David Rock's work, mm -hmm. you know, something that deeply triggers somebody um, and makes them feel very unsafe causes them to, in shock, pull back. And if you keep screwing up as a manager, I'll pull back a bit more. And I'll pull back a bit more until one day I've got up and I've, I'm like, I've resigned in my head. I'm done. But guess what? I'm still going to show up to work because mm -hmm. I got to get another job. And I might be here for another year. Hell, I might be here for another 10 years. Resigned, but just coming in. And Gallup's research has found that, guess what? You need about five highly engaged people to counteract the drag of one person that feels like that. Oh, wow. So when we talk about like building high-performance workplaces that are based on caring, Sometimes you have to, you know, you have to demonstrate tough love in order to show care to a high-performing team. <gasps> That's so interesting. You know, it's fascinating how, so you know, this, this psychological contract gets, you know, form, it, it guides us it, because it, it, it's effective. For those of you that are familiar with this concept, it's, it's, it's an internal story we tell ourselves. For sure. Um, and we know that stories create feelings and it's For feelings sure. that drive actions and responses. One of the things that I loved about your communication with me, Facebook was an incredibly highly chaotic, highly stressful environment. Um, being there for me, I loved it and also couldn't stand it simultaneously <laughs> because it was just challenging constantly, Yeah, especially back then. Mm -hmm. You were third down for Mark. Mm -hmm. So you were just a little bit busy mm -hmm. every day. And the thing that you did in every single communication, and I talk about this to, still today because it was mind-blowing that you would do this. You're like, what is it that I did? In yeah. every email, you would have a sentence, one sentence to like reply to my question or get something done, and you would have an emoji at the end, <laughs> always. It would be some emoji, not the same thing. It would be a different one regularly. <laughs> but what it did for mm. my anxious attachment, mm. not knowing if I was doing it okay, doing mm. it right. right? The, the, the standards at Facebook were really high when I was there. They, they were, and I think they still are. Right? Yeah. I felt so safe with you because mm. of that communication style. Mm. That one little emoji that changed everything for me. And when you didn't have the emojis... <laughs> told yourself that, a story that i told myself a story yeah you talk about the mercy of the fallout from our triggers mm. how stressed i was in getting mm. shit done for you right mm. it was unbelievable and then you talk about work is such a huge part of our lives and yet we still get uncomfortable with the idea of kindness and love Ooh, that's a big one yeah i mean you know, um, when we use the, the L word in a workplace setting. We, this, is not we, the, this is not the series on of whatever show that no, was no. back in the day. <laughs> well, you know, it's easy to think about romantic love, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, the concept of agape is yeah. centuries old. Right, absolutely. And, and it's about, you know, reflects love, kindness, respect, connection, you know, peace. And... Um, you know, you spend so much of your lives with these people. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet if I asked any of your listeners or what, anybody, any of the viewers to um, close their eyes for a f just 10 seconds and think about the best, most influential person in their lives, you know, they would 
you know, empathize those feelings as part of the process. And it would almost certainly show up in behavioral kind of changes to their face and their body posture. I mean, you know, this stuff matters. I'm a really deep believer in Martin Seligman's concept Mm. that human success is built on the notion of flourishing. And he makes a very powerful case in his book, Flourish, that the next evolution, he implies a, a, an important next step in the evolution of the human race is the acquisition of, um, of wisdom, right? Um, and wow. as such a powerful part of wisdom is what it implies, which is human flourishing. You know, mm. w- what are you going to do with all this wisdom? You're going to make oh, your life wow. better. So he makes the case that we need... If we want to create flourishing societies, we have to break it down. We have to look at workplaces. We have to look at families. We have to look at churches and synagogues and temples. We have to look at community centers. We have to look at, you know, um, governmental and non-governmental organizations and start to ask ourselves, how do we design these things in a way that creates the kind of, the kind of outcomes that will lead to human flourishing, which is, you know, uh, you know, all of the things you, your viewers could imagine, you know, like a flourishing society where incarceration rates are low, murder rates are low, like education mm-hmm. rates are high, life expectancy is high, infant mortality is great. Like all of these things that tell us that a society works really well need to be actively designed. And, and frankly, a lot of what we have today, are, we've inherited from the industrial age. Yeah. You know, think about public health. I mean, we inherited a lot of that from the Victorians. And in turn, you know, a lot of that came from the ancients. I mean, like, you know, AI is going to force a massive, massive change in how people work and whether and how much they work. And so, you know, maybe the great opportunity for us that sits in front of us in, you know, 10 to 30 years out is how do we actually build these and build these societies that we've always wanted? Because now we have the time and sophistication to do it. I hope that we grasp that nettle. Mark, uh, Martin Seligman also talks a lot about learned helplessness. Yes, absolutely. And he has a book called The Hope Circuit. Where mm. does the structure of hope fit into the paradigm of flourish? So one of the things he talks about in his book is that the psychological profession and our understanding of psych- mainstream psychology Um, including occupational psychology as well as clinical psychology, finds its roots in the work of the first part of the 20th century when hundreds of thousands of men, actually over time millions of men, when you look at like the Great War, the Boer War, World War II, Vietnam, you know, two desert wars, is an epidemic of what used to be called shell shock, but we now know is post-traumatic, you know, it's like these, these terrible brain injuries, PTSD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting is like the, the, the biggest concern for the, the application of psychological principles to all of the 20th century was like, m- let's make huge sections of society that are massively injured, traumatically, emotionally, and psychologically. Let's make them well so they're at least not, they're able to function in society. And so I think that gave rise to what Martin Seligman calls a deficit mindset. The way of seeing the world is through a lens that assumes that flourishing occurs by fixing and addressing and mitigating deficiencies and weaknesses. And so 
There is very, and he famously said when he became the American president of the American Psychological Society in 19, I think it was about 1999, he said like, we've published like in the last couple of years, like thousands of articles on stress, you know, disease, you know, different kinds of pathology. And he said less than like, less than 500 on joy, right? And it was like a lightning bolt that went through the, the psychological world. Because there was this dawning realization that we only understood half the canvas. Mm. We only understood the canvas about disease. Because if you look at the, the, what was the accepted Bible of neurological conditions that every psychologist buys in her or his very first year in school, it's all about fixing and addressing dangerous yeah. or deficient and dysfunctional yeah. pathologies. And so Martin Seligman says... Actually, there's this another whole half of the canvas you haven't even known. We, none of us knew with there, which is like the realm of positive emotion, of positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And with several other leading psychologists um, mapped and then published the framework of positive, of positive virtues and strengths, which is, became known as the VIA, the values in action. And you can go and take the VIA, it's free. Um, and it maps a small number of kind of high level positive emotions. And the thing that's really interesting to understand about positivity is, is it's not necessarily about happiness, right? It's not, it's not necessarily about how do we make everyone feel happy? You can have lots of positive emotions that don't actually correlate to happiness. One of them is hope. One of them is courage. One of them is um, zest for life. You know, there are some very powerful things that, you know, don't necessarily in the moment make you feel happy, and yet they're absolutely positive in nature. They're constructive. They're on which um, a pathway can be built. And, and, and in his book, he talks about how transformative it was to treat mentally, mental, me mentally ill patients with positive principles as an alternative to what is traditional deficit-based talk therapy and, frankly, antidepressants, which do no more than just cosmetically cover the, the problem. Mm -hmm. They don't actually make it go away. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think he makes a very Deborah compelling Monte case. talks a lot about that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That, that, that there, there are no antidepressants aren't really, there's absolutely. no evidence that shows that. No, they're, they're at best yeah. a coping strategy. As someone yeah. that's been on them themselves, right. I can attest to that. Right. You know, at yeah. some point I stopped taking them and I still had to do the work. Right. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, I think what's really kind of interesting is the piece that I'm concerned with, the bit yeah. that I believe or I can put a dent in, yeah. is like, how do you build a flourishing organization, right? That's the question. And that's really the work that I got for the first time in my career, really the chance to do when I arrived at Facebook, because I, I got to work for two fantastic women. You know, Sheryl Sandberg and Laurie Gola were progressives in thinking about organizational culture and design. And I have to be really honest with you, the first five years in that, I don't think, I, I don't think Sheryl ever looked me in the face and said, no, you can't have it. That, it was always, help me understand the science and, the and what the data tells us. Um, does it feel like the right thing to do? D does it feel Facebook culturally relevant? And, and she was oh. like, go, do it, go, try it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, the, Laurie and I cooked up the strength stuff together that became, mm. you know, the strengths revolution of Facebook. I mean, it's still one of the master levers. If you, face in the Facebook um, engagement survey, if you say, yes, I get to do my, play to my strengths every day at Facebook, you're more likely to be a high performer. You're more likely to be on a higher performing team. And you're more likely to report high levels of overall fulfillment, which is a form of human flourishing. So we know that when you create a workplace and you build teams around people's strengths, 
you're playing a very, very important part in this bigger picture of what it means to build a flourishing human. So I want to pull a thread on something here and go back a little bit, rewind just a tad. You talked about we're at the mercy of the fallout of our own triggers, mm. which brings us to learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is about a lack of self-worth, a lack yeah, of energy. It's a coping strategy, right? It's a coping strategy given whatever limiting belief mm. system mm. in your family of origin or your primary caregivers, whatever you experienced growing up has impacted and conditioned epigenetically, neurobiologically, yeah, whatever. You bring that into the workplace. Absolutely, you do. Uh, right? Yeah. We have to contend with a percentage of the workplace that is exhibiting learned helplessness. We can see mm -hmm. that in Gallup with 68% of the mm -hmm. workforce disengaged. We can see that in McKinsey. 67.7% of the workplace is experiencing toxic uh, you know, behavior globally. <laughs> How do we move from understanding who we are as an individual leader, a place of learned helplessness for those that are, mm -hmm. right? My self-esteem is low, mm -hmm. don't have energy. Mm -hmm. I don't believe I can advocate for myself or others. Yeah, it's a right? horrible place to be. It's a horrible place. I mean, the, the, the experiments, the studies are, are just yeah. heartbreaking. How do we tie that back to resilience? Mm. How do we tie that back to encouraging, engaging, reigniting that part of the workforce in a culture that espouses flourishing? Mm. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of really great sophisticated stuff you can build in organizations that will address a lot of that. Most importantly, performance management design. but the kind of the all of that doesn't matter very much if you don't have evangelists at the top of the organization mm -hmm. you have to be part of a leadership group including the founders and the leaders who truly believe that they want to build a place yeah like that absolutely because i mean you know my business partner sarah and i have worked with close to 200 startups in the last seven years and we've worked with a number of founders that truly wanted to tick the box and we're kind of like oh we're taking the money and this isn't this doesn't feel great because we believe in what we do right we we care about the work and believe that these things matter and we've i've, I've even found myself in a situation where um you know i worked with a founder who loved everything that i said in a one-on-one -on -one. we spent hours talking mm -hmm. deeply and philosophically about all of these ideas and then when he sat in on the pilot program publicly picked it apart in front of his team instead of defending it because he himself didn't feel oh, wow. secure enough to really say that he wanted to lead it. And mm -hmm. so it was easier um, to send them mixed signals. And I think that in those kinds of situations, you haven't got hope in hell of building a highly engaged culture. Let's just be, <laughs> let's just call it, right? You haven't got hope in hell. The other thing is, the other reason you won't have a hope in hell is when people see you pretending not to notice the bullshit as a senior executive. And there is so much bullshit mm -hmm. in organizations. Yep. You know, and I think, and, and that's like, for instance, to, you know, when brilliant jerks are allowed to jump and step all across people, 100%. you know, it speaks volumes about yeah. what truly matters to you. Yeah. Um, you know, when you fail to invest in making your managers better, 
so that they can clear the path in front for you and so you can hit the target. It says that you don't really care that as much about the target as you say you do. Um, you know, when you behave in a way that is completely at odds with the values that are printed and stuck up on the wall when I come through reception, it says a lot about you. And so I think um, there's only some organizations where these ideas truly are going to work. Um, and frankly, they're in the minority. I mean, Gallup, you know, Gallup suggested that, you know, the percentage of companies that are truly doing this work really deeply is quite small, mm -hmm. even though a lot of them have had a go. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're working against an avalanche of internal policy yeah. and behavior that is at odds with these principles, then it's hard. That doesn't mean to say a manager can't make a change for her or his team. Like you can still make a difference with the people that you manage, but you've got to learn how to to deal with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think it needs to start with the top. I think, I think it, what's also really important um, is recognizing that the role of the leader, given that he or she plays such an intrinsic role, mm. um, needs to be a democratized one, yeah. particularly in knowledge organizations where you've got an organization full of mostly college graduates. I mean, these are smart people. Yeah. They know their stuff. Your job as an organization is to recognize that great managers should be a scientist of their, their people's behavior and actively figure out how to keep keep them in uh, it, you know on the right direction so you've got to invest very very heavily in the mm -hmm. skill of managers and part of that is making it easy for people to not be a manager right mm -hmm. not be a leader not everybody wants to be an org leader right you know some people want to be technical specialists and their shadow is their brilliance mm -hmm. so what that means is your, your entire organization intention is tilted towards only drawing into management people that have the curiosity, excitement, energy, and strength for it. That means you don't pay them any more money to be a manager because why, why would you dirty this really important role by incentivizing the wrong kind of behavior? Like, no, no, no. If you want to be a manager here, it's something that we're not going to pay you more money for because it's just one important role amongst many. And that kind of speaks to the fact that great leaders don't see themselves as what I call the kind of air traffic controller. You know, they're, like, they're not looking down from their high tower, sort of directing the planes on the airfield and telling people when to stop and go. Mm -hmm. We've all worked for managers like and leaders like that. Mm -hmm. No, actually, they're like that orchestra conductor, right? They're sitting mm -hmm. in the orchestra, you know, they, um, they recognize that they have one important role, but so do the maestros you know, yeah. they brought, draw out these beautiful sounds. So, uh, I think managers are hugely important. And I think that organizations have to be really intentional about their psychological contract, about yeah. what the compact is like truly, like, mm -hmm. how are we going to treat you? What's on offer? So what is this relationship going to yeah. look like? And I think you've got to be very intentional about that as an organization so that you can stay true to, true to that path, whatever it may be. Yeah. Because it's going to vary from company to company. I remember at Facebook you being incredibly passionate about people managers and yeah. speaking about that constantly. Tell us the story about you sitting in the new higher orientation at Facebook. Yeah, well, you know, I joined Facebook at a time where um, our hiring targets were exploding. I mean, you know, you don't go from like, I don't know, seven or 800 when I joined to 17,000 in seven years without it being crazy. Yep. And one of the things that I think is really important that is often misunderstood about orientation into a new organizational culture is that it's this first powerful step that you've taken beyond 
what was promised in the hiring interview, what we, we chose to show you, that we wanted to present you rather like a realtor that stages a house. Now you get to start to see the real, what's really under the hood, right? Mm. And that's the moment when the emotional validation process begins, mm. which is the purpose oh. of new hire orientation and, and onboarding is, okay, yeah, it's to tell you where the toilets are and how to sign up for medical, but it's not that. This is about emotionally validating one of the biggest choices of your life, which is where I choose to go work, who mm. I choose to hang out with, where I think I'm going to grow, right? And what we reveal to, your, to you in those first few days and in the first few months has a profound impact on all kinds of things that go downstream because research tells us that, you know, for instance, if people have a terrible onboarding experience, they're less, they're likely to not even last a hundred days. Mm. You know, I, I, and I've seen it at close hand. I once, you know, I, you know, I've, I once managed to my shame, somebody who I tried everything I could do to help that person really truly feel, get that moment where you walk through the doors and you feel, yeah, this is, this is family. Mm. I got this. You know, it's like, do I belong and is my contribution valued, right? To the most important things that humans need. And after two years of trying really hard, this person didn't. And they moved on. Mm. And they moved on to something else. And they subsequently moved on from something else beyond that. But my yeah. point is, like, you invest all of this effort yeah. into putting, you know, for most managers, you know, they've got teams of, what, three to eight people. So this is a really small, intimate group of people whose chemistry you've got to get right. And you're going to be with through the good and the bad for maybe years, you know, mm. um, you've put all this effort in and because this person truly didn't get to the place where they felt they belonged, you lost them and the team suffered and you got to start all over again and you just wasted shareholder money. Yeah. Like, shame on you, mm. you know? And so a, orientation is not HR's job. It's not the company or it's your job. And the reason it's your job is because the team is the critical unit of performance. Yeah. Right. There's no such thing as great companies. There's great brands. But when you look at mm. highly successful organizations, they're full of high performing teams. In other words, mm. people experience the culture. They experience the highs and the emotional lows through this really small and intimate group. And so Paying attention to how to get that, that, that set of chemical equations really cooking is the most important job of the company organizationally. Because bar none, bar none. Like, you know, if your teams are not performing well, then you as an organization are going to fail or parts of what you do are going to become dysfunctional yeah. and drag the organization down. And so, you know, culture is expressed through teams, right? People's journey and how they grow and perform is expressed through teams, you know? Yeah, I love this concept. When I was at Facebook with you and I reported to you, the thing that I witnessed so often every day was pride that you had. Mm -hmm. You had so much pride. You had so much excitement. I know that there were some challenges personally for you throughout many mm, of those years yeah. that I was there. Yeah. Um, and I was so honored that you even shared them vulnerably with me. So thank you again. Mm -hmm. In that experience of pride, you stayed for seven and a half years. Mm. And then you left. Mm. You left for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you now with your pride about Facebook? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I think it's important um, to separate Facebook the organization from Facebook the brand. 
Because mm. I do think they are quite different. In many ways, they're different. I mean, they're intrinsically linked, of course, like every organization. Yeah. Because the brand promise that the customers experience is reflected in the employee promise. They're two ends of the same customer value chain. So they are intrinsically connected. At the same time, you know, I think there is an interesting kind of observation that I have about the organization. I, 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 I had the great privilege to, to, to work very, very closely with many of the early architects of the organization um, and be in the room as they talked about the vision for the organization. And it was exciting. It was progressive. It was built on smartness and collaboration and kindness um, and, of course, execution, right? Um, and I kind of regard myself really as, a, as an org scientist, right? I mean, I, that's really, I'm an architect. I build and design things that help organizations get better. And so I had this wonderful nerdy seven and a half year ride and built friendships with all of these people. I mean, Cheryl is a very, very special and unique organizational leader. There's very few like her in the world. Um, you know, many of the most important organizational cultural principles that became the mantras of Facebook were Cheryl's ideas. Um, and um, she thought deeply in a very sophisticated way about behavior and design mm -hmm. and what leaders should be doing. And she rolled up her sleeves. I mean, I taught classes with Cheryl several times. She came to new hire orientation. She came and did manager sessions. I mean, I couldn't have asked for much more. At the same time, um, and what's also really interesting is one of the things that we all loved about that early mission of Facebook was um, the mission of the organization, right? Which is to make the world more open and connected. I mean, what could be more, what could create a deeper sense of pride as a young professional in knowing that you were putting a dent in humanity because hundreds of millions of people all over the world were on this platform. Yeah. And we were seeing things like the Arab Spring where we were yeah. perceived to feel like the architects of good in the world, right? That's intoxicating uh, stuff. Talk about belonging. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I can remember sitting in, you know, um, all hands meetings just right across from Mark as he would stand up and say, the reason this is our mission is because it makes the world a better place. I mean, yeah. goodness me. Right. Like, that's cool stuff. Um, that's definitely and intoxicating. And then when yeah. we went to go public, right, as an organization, yeah. Mark was very, very clear in his, in his S1 filing, which is you know why we're doing this like he he said very very clearly we you know we build products and services to make the world better not the other way around you know this is, in other words we're not we, we we make money in order to build great experiences to make the world a better place we're not here you know in other words we're driven by this this enduring dream of making the world more open and connected it's not about money mm -hmm. where we make money it's about about making better services and i think that leads me personally to how I see org the, the Facebook, the organization, Facebook, the brand and the way it operates in the world. And it, and it looks and feels a long way from those early, yeah. early, that early vision. And I know I'm not the only one that feels this way. A lot, of the, a lot of the early alumni feel a deep sense of sadness as, the, as some of the uh, things that have gone on have kind of chipped away at that really wonderful vision. And I think that's been difficult because... Um, Let's be perfectly frank, you know, um, Facebook's experienced some catastrophic lapses of trust mm. on its watch. Enormous amounts of data, enormous amounts of data have been uh, breached a number of times. Mm. Um, 
we've seen some problematic implications of what happens when all of this data is used for misinformation in elections. And I don't only actually mean in the United States. I mean, you know, for, I think we often forget there are billions of people around the world on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And in many, many third world countries, it's the only way people truly connect and build community and, and, and communicate. And so I think that for me personally, and I can only think about my own, I, I can only speak to my own experience. I, I see great disappointment in what feels like an erosion of the trust that was such an important part of the employee promise. And let's face it, it's translated into the, into the user promise because I don't know that Facebook is trusted in the way that it was yeah. a decade ago. And that makes me sad because that can only have been a consequence of decisions the company has made yeah. in that intervening period. Now, decisions I'm not a part of, and probably some of those decisions, incredibly difficult ones with some very, very difficult edge cases, I'm sure. But when you step back and you see the bigger picture, um, I feel very, very sad. Mm. Now, is Facebook still a fascinating place to work? And does it do a lot of really good and interesting work to engage its people? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, this tension is there. Um, and I think, you know, the recent round of layoffs have probably had some profound effect on employees' sure. sense of their own For psychological sure. contract at Meta now. You know, so having said all of that, I've worked in tech for, this is my 33rd year. Wow. And, you know, I, I've lived through, I've lived through number, the number, the rise and fall of several empires. Yeah. in 33 years in tech you just you can't not like i've seen the rise and fall of companies like digital equipment compaq right yahoo yeah. um facebook um we're about to see algorithmic search get humbled in a whole new way because of ai mm. you know this is the recurring journey of the valley this kind of ever never-ending cycle of you know of 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 immense growth and vibrancy and then you know um in the case of 2001 the bursting of the dot-com bubble you know in the case of 2008-9 the wall street crash and in the case of 2023 the arrival of ai right mm -hmm. these are all great defining moments in, our, in the valley and mm -hmm. facebook is really no not that different to any other organization mm -hmm. there was a moment when i felt like i was the bee's knees because i was head of learning at yahoo there was a day when Yahoo was the darling of the internet and it's a husk of its former self now. Yeah. No. So, you know, I, in the greatest respect to Facebook, I think um, it changed the world. It's connected mm. to what, two or three billion people, I, some enormous number of people at this point. And organizationally, it seeded the most incredible diaspora of talent into the valley you could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about the just little old me, right? Like I've touched 200 startups in the, Sarah and I have touched 200 startups in the last seven years with really the kind of the chemical formulas we created at Facebook mm -hmm. all those years ago. Now you talk about like seeding the valley and, you know, the, the person that referred me to the job at um, what was then Facebook was somebody I worked with at Yahoo. Yeah. You know, so um, it's easy to see this through just one lens, but there is a lot of interesting ripples um, that I think will come about this. I am sad that um, not all social media platforms in our country, country currently are being treated equally. Um, but, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, 
human beings want to connect and digital connection is the future we in are. whatever shape or form that is right now. I mean, I, I remember Chris Cox used to stand up in orientation in the early days and say, you know, I mean, this is very prophetic. He would stand up and say, you know, the blue and white website is very 2010 of us, very 2011 of us. What we're actually building is a social layer in the human race. Mm. That's what this is all about. And unquestionably, they've done that. You know, there is no other social layer in humanity that's, that mm. outguns meta. So, you know, I'm optimistic and hopeful that, you know, um, that big social layer will continue to be a force for good in the world. I have to watch from the sidelines like the rest of us. You talk I'm kind about of worried based on what I've seen in the last few years, but we'll see, you yeah. know? Yeah. We'll see. And I know that a lot of the alumni, because I talk to all of them, the people that I work with, mm -hmm. this is, I'm not alone in feeling this way. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing all yeah. that so vulnerably. You talked about journeys. Mm. You talked about growth. Mm. You were born in the UK. <laughs> yes. You grew up in, on an island, the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight, yes. You, I watch you on Instagram. I've known you for quite some time now, 13, 11 years, something yeah. like that, 12 years. Your mother has been a huge influence. She has. In your life. You love her incredibly. I remember the video that you have when you surprised her. I think it was on Instagram, and I loved watching that it's so much. It's a very heartfelt much. moment. Yeah, yeah. we've been apart for over two and a half years because of the pandemic. Right. And then a, so I had a very sweet. difficult year that followed that in my personal life, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about. But it meant that I didn't see her. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm, I, you know, I'm 57 this year, but I still want to hug for my mum. You know, like, I mean, that Tony, change. Tony Shea has at uh, Zappos, he says, mm. um, there, there's a quote of him, uh, from him, of him. Uh, what's the ROI of hugging your mom? It's such a great quote. You better believe it. It's Absolutely. such a great, such a great quote. Talk a little bit about what you learned as a young boy mm. growing up in your family mm. and those values that were set those limiting beliefs that were conditioned mm. in you, mm. the sense of belonging or lack thereof that you experienced, and how did that propel you? How did that foundationalize a conviction in you to do what you have been doing for 33 years in tech? Because I look at you, I hold the memories of our time together, and I admire you in such a way, you know, that for me to still talk about our relationship after all these years of leaving Facebook in 2013, mm -hmm. December of 2013, or whenever it was, 10 years later, that you still come up in every single presentation mm -hmm. that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a very rural, little island that's about 24 miles across in the 1970s, you can imagine, was a very, very, very rural place. I mean, um, you know, high levels of poverty on the island, mm. low education rates. There's a couple of big prisons, three huge prisons on the island, and many, what? many of the prisoners settle on the island. I mean, there's all kinds of wow. social problems. I mean, but it's also full of all these beautiful thatched cottages and beautiful yeah. beaches. I mean, it was a very interesting... You know, we talk about the dysfunction of the countryside communities, and mm. I think that's true everywhere in the world. I have my fair share of that. Um, you know, I grew up, so my, both my parents were blue collar workers. My father 
um, worked in construction. Um, my mum went on to become a mental health nurse. Um, and, um, you know, the 1970s were a rough time to be uh, a kid. You know, we now look back on that period and know that there were record levels of abuse that went on in families that went unreported. There weren't tools in society like social workers or police officers that were trained to deal with this stuff. There was no sex offenders register. There was no, there was no way in which, um, people were properly held to account for the, the wreckage, the, the gen, the, you know, many of the boomers, but especially the Gen X and the Gen Y generation brought into their families. And I was no different. I had an abusive father. He's a violent man. And at times, at times, he was capable of like um, extreme, mm. creating extreme joyous moments. But he was also very terrifying because he's very unpredictable, very sort of hot-headed and at times went too far. And so I think that, um, you know, one of the things that is a, I, I, I realize now in my fifties that, uh, you know, a lot of the trauma that came out of that period of my life, because what was also going on for me is that, you know, I was a, um, I was gay and didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Like I was also grappling with the challenges of like, I feel different. Um, and, being gay in Britain in rural communities in the 1970s and even into well into the 80s was n- absolutely not safe. Like, absolutely not safe. There were police officers that were hiding to entrap children um, instead of, you know, ha- you know, there being things in society that could help children, you know, understand who they were. You know, there were terrible people were being sent to jail for all kinds of trumped up things. There were lots of there was lots of violence. I mean, gay bashing was very, very common all across Britain in in that period. And and all of the imagery about gay people was very um, it was horrible in society. You know, the narrative, it was it was far worse than it is today. So I think, you know, you you grow into adult life with an enormous amount of um, secrecy. You know, and so um, I think in many ways, you know, when you grow up with a, you know, with a father who, because I think one of the things that was interesting about my dad, when I look back is um, there were these great moments, but he was mostly concerned with himself and his life. Mm. And at times in his weakest moments, satisfying, satisfying the things that he really wanted. And so I think that, you know, as a child, you grow up not really, I mean, I was also the third child and I was not the right gender to, to really garner his full attention. And so I think in many ways, you know, you, you feel somewhat disconnected from one of the most important relationships ah. you should have in your life, particularly as, as a boy with, with mm-hmm. like, how do I role model being a man in the world? Yeah. And I didn't have a very good one. Like a lot of men, you know, and women, you know, they grow up with terrible role models for parents. Um, My mum wasn't like that, I hasten to add. She was in many ways a a powerful refuge because we we experienced a very strong intellectual connection and we still do. And so we love to talk about stuff and spend time talking with each other about intellectual subjects. It's that's a part of Mm -hmm. powerful way in which we connect. But so I think as a, as a young man, and as I think about the trajectory of my life, um, I've always been, you know, human beings need two really important things to feel like they're truly flourishing. They, they want to stand out. They want to be seen and noticed and recognized and celebrated and cherished, but they also want to belong, right? They want to fit in. They want to feel included. They want to feel part of something. And so when you grow up not getting that, um, it, you know, you respond, um, 
I, I, I don't know quite what the right way of articulating it. it's like, let me prove him wrong. That kind of, mm. that kind of like, maybe it was that kind of thought pattern. I think also, um, you know, I wasn't the only one in my family that was suffering. And I think that also developed a strong rescue response in me, mm. which taken together with this desire to prove to the man that I wanted his attention the most that I'm, I'm, I, you know, it, it propelled me in many, many ways. Um, I also wanted to get off that little rinky dinky Island. Like I knew that I couldn't be me and I couldn't, and I was ambitious and wanted to be successful. So I kind of felt myself pulled away and, it, and I've never returned. I mean, I left mm -hmm. at 18 and I've, I've gone back to visit, but I've never gone back. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I only came to these, these, these discoveries in my forties when I finally decided to go to, to, to have therapy. Like, like, why am I like this? And, um, you know, and in many ways, I fixed a lot of the rights in my own head because one of the beautiful things about being able to have the privilege of being at Facebook at a moment when I was able to make a little bit of money was that I was able to go take care of my siblings. That was a really important and beautiful moment for me where I could say, you know, we're all in this together because look at what we've all endured together. Look at the journey we've all been on together. It was a really, for me, a very important sort of like putting down an important bag that I'd been hauling around for 40 years moment, you know? Yeah. Um, now that I'm in my 50s and I'm a father of three wonderful people, I don't have that same drive in the way that I did before. And so some of that's ebbed away, you know, and it doesn't matter as much. Um, but I think that's the origin story. And there's no question that my trauma, that, that those, those traumatic experiences mm. were the trigger. They were the catalyst that led to really everything else. Mm. Um, and of course, I've got an, a reasonable amount of get up and go and reasonable amount of drive you i mean that that you, you do know, <laughs> that you know, i mean my father <laughs> actually one of the most important virtues that i inherited from my father was the the get shit done dna mm. string you know i mean like that man worked he worked it, and it i'm grateful for that it was certainly inspirational when i was when i was with you at, yeah. at facebook in closing my last question this has been such a, a wonderful dream come true conversation for me for sure you have three children mm. whom you adore, mm -hmm. who is always at the fore of your Instagram posts and mm -hmm. you talk about all the time when we are at Facebook, you are always doing so much with them. As we look to the future, right. as we look to this new world that is mm -hmm. unfolding itself, emerging, mm -hmm. what is it that you hope for them? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I hope that they don't have to worry about how to get healthcare. Yeah. I think that's a problem that is still not solved in our society. Mm -hmm. Obamacare has not truly solved it. Um, I, think, I think that's a human right, access to quality healthcare. It's like, if you talk about human flourishing societies, how does it get bigger than that, right? Yeah, for sure. I think um, that they truly get to be in a job where they get to be in their strength zone most of the time, like love what they do, mm. like really feel that they're making a dent in their life and in society, which for my eldest is childcare, for my middle child it's in climate change. Mm. She's taking a master's degree in, um, in, under, in, in climate policy. And then for my youngest, it's to reach people through her art. She wants to have her own gallery and be an artist. And, and, and 
you know, I hope that they are all able to support and thrive that way and just really feel that they can live the lives that they want. You know, I mean, I think that that to me seems like such a fair expectation in society that people feel that they have the freedom to take the path that makes them feel most fulfilled. I mean, you know, we talk about like wokeness and this huge, stupid debate in society about wokeness. We're talking about wokeness is really no more than my willingness to understand who you are, what makes you tick, and, re and behave respectfully around you. All of us across the spectrum want the same thing. Yeah. And so that's what I want for my kids. And, you know, I know that, you know, after I've gone, the only difference that truly I will have made to society, it won't really be the OD work. I mean, that's important in the moment while it, while it matters. But it's leaving three human beings behind that are better than me, net, you know, cumulatively. Um, and I'm proud of the fact that I've talked about my childhood trauma with all three of them in, mm. in quite, quite detail. Wow. Um, and, you know, managed to stop that trauma yes. dead in its tracks. Yeah. Because that's the point, right? Yeah. Like, as a parent, like, you want to you, you wanna create an environment where your kids play to their strengths and you want them to have an even playing field. Yeah. You know, why not? Beautiful. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for hiring me at Facebook. Our interview lasted 17 minutes and somehow- Did it really? It did, yes. Well, I, I, but you know, so Francis Fright Harvard says, you know, trust mm -hmm. is built on three really important things. Authenticity, right? And we can smell a lack of that in the water like a yeah. shark smells blood, right? It's about credibility, personal credibility. Mm. And it's about empathy. When I feel that you're authentic towards me, that there's rigor in your logic and there's your empathy is directed at me, I'm much more likely to trust you. And you came out of the gates with all of that. Oh, thank you. So yeah. Such a pleasure to have you here. Such Absolutely. a pleasure to have you in my life. Thank you for making Likewise. time. Um, so good to see you after all these years. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rajkumari. This was a, this was a lot of fun. That was Rajkumari Niyogi and Stuart Crabb. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, Production assistance by Tiari Boutte and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in.